0: And right before we get into it with Jason Jones, here is a clip from his new film, Divided Hearts of America. Very powerful.
1: When does a person get rights? When a person is a person. When is a person a person? And that's the thing. When When a child is born, then the child is a child. If we
0: look at the history of abortion laws, it's always been predicated on when a human's life begins. There is no personhood under law for fetuses. We don't have that in this country. The state legislature has passed the Reproductive Health Act. They say that this law has made Illinois the abortion capital of the Midwest. This is one of the worst possible choices that any woman and her family has to make.
1: Um, The infant would be delivered. Uh, The
0: infant would be kept comfortable. There's nothing more common sense than giving a child born the right to continue
1: People were saying, wait a minute, do they really kill babies? I said, hey, it's called infanticide. It's important that as African Americans that we truly
0: understand the history of abortion.
1: In New York City, the home of
0: Planned Parenthood, for decades more black babies have been aborted than born alive. For decades. Abortion is targeting black America. That's not an accident. That's genocide. Welcome to this episode of the John Henry Weston Show, where I'm very pleased to introduce you to, well, someone who probably doesn't need an introduction. He's a great friend and he's been a stalwart pro-life warrior for decades and decades. It is Jason Jones. Jason, welcome to the program.
1: It's great to be on with you, John. John Henry. I always call you John Henry Newman, but so forgive me for that.
0: <laughs> no problem. Let's begin as we always do with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So, Jason, I've been really wanting to have you on the show for a long time, and you had to move uh, from Hawaii. First of all, how is, how's it going in your new, in your new digs?
1: You know, I, I am sorrowful. I miss Hawaii, but we love Texas. It's a beautiful state. It's, I feel like I emigrated to another country, but we love it.
0: Awesome. Awesome. So, we want to bring some hope for the faith today because there's lots of consternation going on and a lot of people actually questioning their faith because well uh, <laughs> the church is in great consternation uh, as as you know with with Pope Francis himself but also we have a new development in Joe Biden Joe Biden uh, masquerading as a faithful catholic Nancy Pelosi did it for some time we saw John Kerry before that but with the actual president of the United States um receiving holy communion going to mass it, it's a very trying time for catholics for faithful catholics and it's it's leading people to question the faith and i was praying my rosary uh, the other day and uh, uh, i think an inspiration occurred to me to contact you about this very thing So if you wouldn't mind, there's a lot of people who know your story, but I know some don't, but I really want you to focus on your conversion story, first of all, from a Catholic perspective. What can you tell us on that?
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting because my pro-life commitment was birthed at the very same moment that my anti-Catholic prejudice was born. Hmm. Uh, And also at the same time, sort of my curiosity at the source of human dignity, and it, it took about 15 years for those all to merge and that I became a Catholic. But when I was nice. a young boy, really, I was uh, a few days before my 17th birthday, my high school girlfriend rode her bicycle over to my house to share with me that she was pregnant. Hmm. And so we had conspired that after my birthday, I would join the army. She would hide that she was pregnant. She went to a Catholic high school, wear baggy sweaters. I'd go to basic training and come home. And when, then we would tell our families I had a friend that just joined the military through the special program for quote unquote troubled youth. So I figured I could get in into the program and, and I did. So uh, while I was in basic training, I would get these letters from my high school girlfriend. We were both sort of from broken homes in different ways. She was from a prominent family with a lot of abuse. Her parents were married, but there was a lot of abuse in the home. And, and my parents had me as teenagers and I never knew them as a married couple, never really had a family. Uh, you know, we were ahead of the time, I guess. What What is the normal American family? I was born to a 16 year old um, is today maybe unfortunately quite common. But uh, so we were both sort of uh, the idea of creating a family and caring for a child. We were excited by this, even though we probably didn't have the um, the formation to live up to our aspirations. Uh, So while I was in basic training, a few weeks before I came home, I get a call from her and her father had found out she was pregnant, beat her up, and took her to Chicago Masonic Hospital, where she had a forced third trimester abortion. And what makes this all very startling is not only was her father Catholic, he was a very prominent Catholic, and he was really best friends with Cardinal Bernadine. And uh, so for me, and I knew this. And in many ways, I looked up to him because he was wealthy and and um, established friends with these important people. I always thought he was a strange guy, but I had admired him and I associated Catholicism with him. So after this Mm -hmm. happened, uh, I would say I became really angry. I became sort of almost an anti-Catholic bigot. And it was grounded. in. at the same time, I didn't know abortion was even a thing, as strange as this may sound until I just let alone something that was legal until I just discovered that my child had been destroyed through a forced third trimester abortion. My captain, I was begging my, I was crying, just asking my captain to call the police. And he he Hmm. looked at me and explained, you know, confused. Why would I call the police? Don't you know, this is all perfectly legal. So it was startling. So, you know, and I'm, I'm a filmmaker in the film business that would be the call to adventure. And what was interesting about this sort of grave injustice that, I experienced, my high school girlfriend experienced, and, and, our, and our child experienced, is that um, how closely connected uh, abortion and the Catholic Church were in, in, in human anthropology. For me, in a real, uh, I was very conscious of this. Why was this so wrong? How could a prominent Catholic do such a thing? And it wouldn't be till years later that, that I, I began to see how just tragic and disgusting it was that this all took place at at a masonic hospital as well
0: Hmm. it's an incredible thing that that you know you were so anti-catholic at this point understandably so it seems to be linked to the most traumatic most hurtful harmful thing in your life at this point uh and yet you came to the very faith that that you you thought so despicable give us the rest of that journey
1: yeah, well, and I did. And sadly enough, my um, high school girlfriend is today even a, a very aggressive anti, you know, she's really anti-Catholic hmm, today wow. um, because of all the experiences that she's uh, that she had to suffer in a way that was much more devastating and intimate than how, how I suffered. it. Uh, so for me, it really I, I became I, I had read the the novella I, uh, by Ayn Rand Anthem in junior high and Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut. And as strange as this sounds after the abortion i thought of those two short stories or the novella and that short story and then i started reading all of ayn rand's nonfiction and her fiction and i became like an aggressive objectivist randian pro-lifer as strange as that all sounds who is very anti-catholic mm-hmm. and um but i i when i graduated college i wrote um sort of my goals were to end abortion and to develop Ayn Rand's metaphysics, epistemology and anthropology. I was searching for an atheist uh, foundation for the self-evident dignity of the human person that became really evident to me through the abortion. Right. Mm -hmm. I, it was, I joked that it was Sartre and Nietzsche and Freud that played a bigger role in me becoming Catholic than any Catholic I had ever met. Um, Because especially Sartre really erased any hope for a human dignity that, to me, was self-evident, but that I came to understand was really the fruit of the gospel. It was the fruit of Christianity. It was the fruit of the Christian vision of the human person that the church taught the West and the world. Um, First, you know, Jewish scriptures were made in the image of God. And then what what does it mean for God to become man and the Trinity to have three persons? and it was through the church thinking about this for centuries that we came to accept what our founding fathers called the self-evident truth that's in our declaration of independence the declaration principle really is not self-evident it was taught to the world uh, through the church mm-hmm. and i had to accept i really i remember that there was a point in time where I, and i didn't want to accept the church's sexual ethics either because by this time i'm in my late 20s had a lifetime of living one way didn't really want to accept the church's sexual ethics. Um, I remember I was just kind of forced. I was really forced into a corner. And I say really by Sartre. But then at the same time, somehow I discovered Chesterton and Bellic, who were very attractive to me, especially in their triumphalism. I found so much of the pessimism in the church that we see, especially in the English-speaking world, was really just depressing to me. And so discovering Chesterton and Belloc around the same time I was at this crisis that the only hope for the human person is, is the Catholic church, this church I hated. Actually, when I graduated college, I put that at my goals were to end abortion develop Ayn Rand's anthropology, metaphysics and epistemology and, um, and uh, destroy the Catholic church. Like That was, I literally, I could show you my journal where I wrote that. So that's how anti-Catholic I was. I saw the church as an obstacle to my commitment to wow. defending the child from violence. Now, here I am, wait, the only support for human dignity was I, I really came to accept genealogically um, is, is, is the Catholic vision of the human person. But it was Sartre that sort of, and wow. Nietzsche, that, dis- that deconstructed any hope for human dignity away from the Catholic church. And I remember thinking, I have to choose how I'm living my life Hmm. um, and abandon any hope for human dignity. And if the human person doesn't have this sort of dignity that we we, we see as self-evident, because it is self-evident, but that's not an answer to its source. I had to either abandon this, what appears to be self-evident dignity to the human person. I had to say that all the great crimes in history and all the great crimes that happen around us personally are not really crimes at all. Um, And it was really, it seems like an easy choice, you know, but it wasn't. Uh, And I really wrestled with it. And I wrestled with God. I'd studied the schism for years. This is how long a process it was for me, hoping to become Orthodox. I thought, and I think a lot of people in the English speaking world that have sort of an inherited anti-Catholic prejudice, the Orthodox Church becomes an acceptable place to go. And I sort of Mm -hmm. followed that route. Um, But Mm -hmm. I wanted to be sure. And so I studied the Mm -hmm. great schism and saw that there were many schisms and the great return in 1688. And I realized if I was going to be honest, and I've tried to make deals with God, like, well, I'll go to this nice Protestant church where they have a bookstore and they all vote the same and look similar to me. Or uh, can I just do that, God? I know it's not really the church, but, and I've really tried to make these kind of deals. And I realized no, I have to go to this place that, is is looks as diverse as the world down the street. And they they have all sorts of inconsistencies in, in the, the community, but that's the church. And that's where I have to go. And I knew that I was broken and and needed formation. And I wish that I could go to some place that was a utopia where everyone was perfect and, and could help form me. But no, I had to go to that hospital of sinners that the church is. And the the violent winds of the age had ripped the doors off the hinges and were, you know, uh, battering down on us even as we knelt in the, in the pews. Um, but the church is the church. And so that was what for me was a really hard decision. But then as soon as I made the decision, as soon as I became Catholic, I remember something Chesterton said that made real sense to me The Catholic Church is the only thing that is bigger on the inside than from the outside. Hmm. And, you know, I am so grateful for the grace uh, and the privilege to be a part of the Catholic church and the spirit of the age tempts Christians in every age and people fall in every age. We feel betrayed and lost and lonely in every age. And I think when when you look at the 2000 year history of the church I'm, I'm honest, and I don't mean to be disrespectful to people who are like wanting to abandon the church because of their quote-unquote great sufferings, but I have to ask them, how would you have felt in Nazi Germany when an SS officer kicked down your door and you knew him from your church, or uh, how would you have felt during the French Revolution when you were surrounded by Catholics that were trying to chop your head off? Or if you were in the Nineveh Plains uh, just five years ago and uh, the Catholics were being slaughtered and enslaved by ISIS, or you were a Christian in the Nuba Mountains today and you were being barrel bombed by Khartoum. Um, You know, I've traveled to these places and I've met these folks and I never hear them suggest that they would abandon Jesus Christ or leave the church because of the great sufferings that they are facing. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder how really we have to acknowledge, and I'm the worst in this, John Henry. I am a very decadent, soft person and I wish that things could always be as easy as they seem to me as a teenage boy in this country in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not the way of the world. And I know that if you ever get an organic yogurt and it has that like inch of cream on top, that is the whole history of the Christian church or the Catholic <laughs> church, I've been born in the cream.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so uh, whatever hardships we face, it's it's strange that, that people are so despairing and I think it's just because maybe they haven't been paying attention to what's happening around the world today and what Christians have suffered throughout the history of the church.
0: Absolutely. You've been very blessed in your life, uh, very much like I was. I, I was um, worse than you, though. I was a fallen away Catholic and raised by like a saint. But nonetheless, we've both been blessed with with faithful wives and uh, a multitude of, of children. Uh, but something came to me the other day in prayer and in specifically why i thought of you um it's that there is something going on in the world today that's very scary that really hasn't gone on in the world before yes we are in a physical la-la land compared to much of the history of the church much of the history of the people of god in fact Um, it is very comfortable uh to to be catholic however there is a challenge today that there wasn't before The lure of the world, the lure of of pornography, the lure of all sorts of worldly pursuits is much more powerful today than it ever, ever was before, much more easily accessible. But not only that, the pull of false doctrine in the church uh, coming today from the highest echelons of the church has caused a kind of a confusion that really the church hasn't experienced before, um, especially when it comes from Rome. And one of the things that, that I really thought about was, what do we do for our own children? There are very many people, your age, my age, around, around the same age, who have children now approaching their teens or in their teens or in their early 20s, and they're questioning the faith, the true faith for another type of faith that maybe isn't so uh rigid or so um fundamentalist that they say you know can there be exceptions you know no one really means to uh, have an abortion nobody wants to but isn't it just if there's really hard circumstances you know what what happens then or the question of lgbt you know can't we go to our um, friend's marriage? They love each other, but, but isn't the church stance being too hard? Can't we maybe provide some exceptions in exceptional cases where it's real true love and so on and so forth? When your children are questioning the faith, even perhaps wanting to leave the faith, how would you respond to them? What would you say to them or what would you do?
1: Well, you know, I think that there are two big obstacles that we, our children are going to face. And I think all children face. First of all, all of us, the first if, if our children are drifting from the faith, especially as they get older, as you mentioned, there's the spirit of the age. And the French Catholic anthropologist, René Girard, said the only thing stronger than the spirit of the age is the Holy Spirit. And so that's why I think it's so important that we impress upon our children the importance of remaining in a state of grace, frequenting the sacraments, especially confession, um, sacramentals, filling our house with with the music of our faith. And our house looks like a Greek monastery. You know, we have so many icons everywhere. Um, And so there's that spirit of the age. And the spirit of the age is becoming quite vicious and cruel and terrifying. And so young people are going to not so much be seduced maybe by the spirit of the age as they have been maybe when we were young. The spirit of the age was quite seductive. Today, the spirit of the age is, is, a, is terrorizing. It's terrorizing young people. If you don't conform, we will destroy you, dox you, take away your YouTube channel, for example, whatever. So there's that. And, and, but also, I think the biggest reason young people leave the faith, and it's my great fear with my own children, is scandal. Hmm. And especially the greatest scandal to my children could be me. And so I, I, my wife and I talk a lot about this. We're both adult converts that, you know, come from broken homes and we didn't receive like what we would call, without being disrespectful to our our parents, my parents had me as children or as teenagers, you know, we didn't have sort of a proper formation. And so we're trying to live up to the, we wanna be the types of parents that our children deserve. And I would never want to be a, a scandal to our children. So in this age of there's so much division and hatred and this shunning culture, this cancel culture, how are we to behave? I I think that the, the, the drift to quote unquote, progressive Christianity is exactly the wrong way to go. And in fact, it is a scandal. And here's why. We're in a world without banisters, to borrow from Hannah Arendt, the great Jewish political philosopher. The only banisters that I really see that I can cling to are serving the vulnerable, serving those who are shunned, uh, serving those left outside of legal protection. A great new book by our mutual friend Carter Sneed talks about how law not grounded in the body is not grounded in the vulnerable. So a law not grounded in the body leaves the vulnerable unprotected. I think the first thing we want our children to see is that, that we serve and love and honor the vulnerable and in doing so that we show that we will not conform to the spirit of the age and we recognize it comes with all sorts of cost but at the same time and if you see that beautiful film by Terence Malik a hidden life which i would wish everyone watch about franz jagerstatter the austrian farmer blessed who refused to say the loyalty oath to hitler even though that the nazis had annexed austria even though his own Bishop was encouraging him to say this loyalty oath to the regime, this loyalty oath to the spirit of the age. Say it, even if you don't, you know, say it, don't believe it, of course, but say it and think of something else. Say it and don't mean it so you can go home to your family. Um, Then a Nazi officer who was Catholic begged him to say it and said to him, do you think you have the right not to say this oath? And Franz says, do you think I have the right to say it? So powerful. Mm -hmm. But even in the midst of this, violent, cruel, vicious ideology that captured his country and was piercing it on his home. Their home was filled with beautiful art, beautiful music, flowers. <laughs> so we should not allow the world to puncture the moral imagination of our children, <laughs> that our children's moral imagination should not be invaded at every minute with discussion about politics and the 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 tragedy of the you know of of bishops openly dissenting from the teachings of the faith not that we don't have those conversations not that there's not a time and a place but I had recently said to my wife my job is dealing with genocide democide and war and I'm a filmmaker and I'm making these projects and working with the Uyghur working with uh, groups in Yemen on the drone war. I ha- and I realized maybe sometimes I'm too careless. I'm walking through the living room And I'm talking about genocide. I said to my wife, that's over. In my office, these conversations take place, the door shut and only during work hours. And we were never a big family. I stopped watching cable news in 2010 and I stopped listening to talk radio in the nineties. I read my news Uh, that way is to protect myself from constantly being manipulated um, and emotionally unsettled. So you gotta keep that in a box. So I think we owe it to our children to protect their moral imagination, to fill their life with beauty and joy. I fill my house with flowers. My wife doesn't like flowers. Okay. (laughs) I do. Um, Always fresh cut flowers, always in and around the house. Icons everywhere. I'm looking at icons right here. Icons everywhere. Um, And so I think that's something that's very important. Also, we have to be the same person inside our house as we are outside our house. If our children see dads one way, in the house and one way outside of the house, that's a grave scandal. Um, So I think our real challenge right now, and then we have to address the inconsistency in some of the church leadership. You know, what does it mean? My kids, I don't know where they get it. They're much tougher on Joe Biden than I am. The things they say, I had to, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, Um, because they're scandalized. It makes them angry. My seven-year-old, I will see him walking around the house. And my wife and I actually do not talk like that he will say things about Joe Biden. I have to call him and, where did you get that? Where did you say that? You know? Um, and he's like, well, isn't he this? And he's that. And I said, well, yes, he is Catholic. And yes, he is pro abortion or he claims to be Catholic is pro abortion. And so those are great opportunities to have conversations, but we have my wife the, the day you emailed me to say, you wanted to have this conversation. It was, it was striking to me. You've done that once before I woke up, said to my wife, I have to get a coffee call John Henry. Cause I, in a dream I was told I have to call this Cardinal before I got back with my coffee, you had called me to say this Cardinal wanted to talk to me. I don't know if you remember that. And then, then you email, email me. You wanted to have this conversation. And um, the whole night before, my wife and I were talking about recalibrating, being more disciplined that we cannot let the, the, the hatred and the division and the calumny and the gaslighting and the insanity that's that we're all having to deal with. As adults, uh, let's shelter our children from that. Ground them in the transcendent truths. Um, fill their life with the sacramentals, the beauty of the faith. Bring them to the sacraments. Be the same person inside the house as outside of the house, to the best of our ability. And when we, when there's a chasm between what we say we believe and how we act, we need to be very open with our children about. Our struggles and why I struggle with this or why I struggle with that, um, and I think if we do that by God's grace, our children will remain in the faith.
0: Amen. Amen. What a what a thing what a world we live in. Um, it it struck me as you were talking about Cardinal Bernardin and that horrific chapter in your life. You're one of the people who have actually. Unmade his scandal, which was the scandal of, you know, the seamless garment, which is complete falsehood. They basically, for him and for all progressive, the progressive movement, so called in the church, is about equating all things with abortion, really subsuming abortion so that we could make the environment and the climate and the death penalty and all this ahead of the concern for life. But you've taken that and really. Not twisted it, given a straight road to it. If you could explain that just a little bit, that'd be great.
1: Yeah, it's 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 it's, 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 it's strange by God's grace because my commitment to sort of a consistent ethic of life uh, came, you know, was was began with my the very beginnings of my work in the pro life movement because I had come as an atheist, never went to church day in his life, knew nothing really about politics. To me, abortion was the intentional direct killing of an innocent human person, of a vulnerable child, the most vulnerable member of the human family. So for me, it um, it birthed in me a, a radical commitment. If you'd have talked to me when I was 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, not to just ending abortion, but to really, I would have said, I wanted to stand between the violent and the vulnerable or the violent and children. And it and it didn't it, I didn't see really that line that our culture had painted and that Roe v. Wade had, the lines that they had drawn. It was just protecting the vulnerable from violence. As I mm-hmm. Went to, got out of the military and went to college, I discovered this quote unquote seamless garment or consistent ethic. And it, re, it, was, it was really gross to me from the very beginning. It was a scandal. The seamless garment to me was really a great scandal to me entering the church. And what might be strange is if you go back and look at my earliest writings in the 90s, I was writing about war and immigration and other things before pro-life. Um, even though I was speaking about pro-life, I felt as a writer, I, I don't have much new to say. I'm learning from all these great pro-life writers. Um, but on war and other things, I felt I could speak as a, as a former soldier. But um, but to me, what well, yeah, what the consistent ethic or the seamless garment does, I think by design, is it drowns the child in the womb in a sea of prudential issues. And in doing so, it not only abandons the child in the womb from those who would protect the child but it also creates divisions on those issues where there is harmony for example like on immigration i support border security and i support a mandatory verification system i also support a big supporter of the dream act um i've been i've been and i've been writing on this for 20 years but i come from this position that that we need a secure border because we want to protect the vulnerable from economic exploitation vulnerable migrants we want to protect vulnerable Americans from having their wages undercut by the exploitation of vulnerable migrants. We want an e-verification system because we want everyone working in this country to have the same architecture of legal protection as the next person. Da, da, da. Now, you may disagree with me on this. You may say, Jason, you know, I think that, that um, a mandatory verification system isn't the best way to go. And, and I may say, I support the DREAM Act because I think the children of parents who were were lured into an underground economy, who were raised around American children, our American children, they should be recognized as such. By the law, you may say, well, but Jason, to do that is gonna lead to more exploitation of migrants and more children trapped. And we can have this argument, these are prudential issues, but we we would both be grounded in a concern for the vulnerable. What the seamless garment does is it creates divisions where there are none, and it leaves the most vulnerable abandoned. And what I notice about the quote unquote seamless garment folks, which have sort of evaporated. I don't know where they are, Um, but the issues I work on, this offends some people. There are issues like in commensurate to abortion in the world today. There are issues like in commensurate to abortion in the world today. For example, 3 million Uyghurs are in concentration camps where they're murdered, their organs are being harvested, where there's forced abortions. Contraception. I'm not saying nothing is like and commensurate to abortion. If tomorrow China nuked Taiwan and Hong Kong, that would say is a like and commensurate issue. It's mass murder of intentional, the intentional mass murder of innocent life. Um, But I wonder why I never see these groups speaking up for the Uyghur, which we all profit from, John Henry, because we wear Nike shoes and we use Apple computers and we shop at Costco. All three of those companies have used, participated with uh, partners that have used slave labor. So I don't Mm -hmm. see them talk about that. I don't even hear them today talking about limiting strategic nuclear weapons, which are designed to target civilians. It's always prudential issues on how best to spend the government dole. So I call it actually, we should call the seamless government what it actually Mm -hmm. is. Preferential option for me, (laughs) preferential option for myself, Catholic social teaching exists (laughs) as an instrument to gratify my ego and as a tool that I can use to argue for benefits that go to me. And then I see most of these people are white, college-educated, middle-class folks using Catholic social teaching to advance what is obviously directly in their interests, when it's the opposite. Catholic social teaching, all of us, look, if you're watching this, what it tells me is by God's grace, you have good formation. You're strong in your faith. We're the privileged ones. We're to serve. We're called to serve. We're, we're, you know, we're the ones that recognize that our neighbors are made in the image of God, that we are surrounded by these, the most beautiful creatures in the created cosmos that angels kneel to. Why would I want to look at Catholic social teaching as an instrument to serve me? And um, and I really believe so to me, I recognize that what I want is an authentic, consistent ethic grounded in the truth. And this new book by Carter Sneed is, is really Wall Street Journal called it one of the top books of 2020. Um, he talks about how we need a legal framework. Grounded in the vulnerability, the, how frail the human body is, the human hmm. person. And that's what Catholic social teaching is about. Uh, is, is, is ordering us to think about the vulnerable. John Henry, I don't know if you remember when uh, there was a false nuclear alarm that went off in Hawaii, a false nuclear alert.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah.
1: And I wrote that article. Um, I think I might've published it with you guys. I forget, but- You did. Absolutely. And my family, I had a plan. I've known since the 90s, we were you know, in the hot seat and I had a plan for my family's safety. So when this happened- we had a timetable, we had go bags, we had a cave to get to. And we got to our cave within the, the time that we needed to get there from a missile to go from North Korea to Hawaii. And we published that article. What was strange to me was, was startling to me. When it was all clear, it was called and we drove back home and I put funny cartoons on for my children to distract them from the trauma of what they just experienced, my whole state experienced. My phone, my, my email and phone and my WhatsApp and my friends from Iraq and Syria filled up my phone. Hmm. Concerned for me. <laughs> wow. You know, other friends were sending funny taxer jokes, but these people who were, were, were literally just beginning to heal from ISIS and ISIS was still in large parts of their country were the first to be concerned for me, not to worry about themselves as a victim, but they were thoughtful to me. And that's what it's about. That we have to be, no matter what we're going through for most of us, um, and I'm not diminishing what any of us and all of us might go through, we are blessed, we are privileged, and what the gospel and the church teach me is I am called to serve the vulnerable, not to use Catholic social teaching as a rhetorical tool to advance my interests at the ballot box, that might have been too long-winded. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's great, Jason. You know what? It's uh, it's great to have you. You're an answer to so many of the the folks who would say, "Oh, all those guys care about is uh, is a baby in the womb, and once it's born, they don't give a damn." Well, uh, you're an you're an answer to that in a big way. I want to thank you for being with us on this episode of the John Henry Weston Show. God bless you, and God bless your family.
1: Thank you, John Henry.
0: And God bless all of you. We'll see you next time. Hi, this is John Henry Weston, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News. I'm coming to you today because we want to be sure that we're communicating clearly with you, our loyal followers. Things are really heating up, as I'm sure you can see. Christians, conservative truth-tellers, are being targeted, are being banned from social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram at an alarmingly fast rate. They are attempting to suppress any narrative that does not fit that of the mainstream media. We knew this day would come. We have been warning everyone who would listen and attempting to build up alternative platforms to continue to reach you. More than these alternative social media platforms, we highly encourage you to subscribe to our email newsletter. We have really built up a large list of loyal readers on our email marketing platform, and we have prepared several backup plans for, well, I want to say if, but it's really when, we are removed from our current platform as well. Additionally, I really encourage you, as I said before, to make it a regular habit to go directly to LifeSiteNews.com. Make it your homepage. While all of these different platforms are an excellent way to curate your news, going directly to our website means that you will never encounter any censorship or sudden loss of LifeSite News reporting. Here's the thing. We will never stop sharing the truth. We founded this organization with the mission to be the life, family, and culture source for men and women who seek to know the truth. We have established a track record of honest reports, and this will never stop, even with censorship happening around the globe. Again, I'm encouraging you to join us on Parlor MeWe, Rumble, and on our email list. You can find all the direct links in the description of this video. May God bless you and keep you, and we are so thankful that you've chosen to follow and support LifeSight News. I'm John
1: Henry Weston, co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News.